Well, do please keep your Bibles open at Joshua chapter 2, and you might also like to open the bulletin, and uh, on the inside you'll find an outline of where we're going to be heading in the next few moments. But first, let's, um, let's ask for God's help. The psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Lord, may that be true for us this morning. Amen. The, the largest living organism ever found is a kind of mushroom. You're all thinking, well, on earth are you going with this? Well, it was discovered in a forest uh, in Oregon in the United States uh, where it spread across more than 2,000 acres of forest land. And it's known locally as the honey mushroom. Uh, Scientists say that it's been growing there for more than 2,000 years, uh, killing trees as it grows. But listen to what one senior botanist says about it. She says this, When you're on the ground, you can't really see it. All you see is lots of dead trees. But behind the scenes... This deadly fungus is invading the roots of the trees, stealing their nutrition, killing the forest. But you won't see it unless you know what you're looking for. Now friends, that's the kind of perspective we need to have in our minds if we're to understand the book of Joshua. Because as we look at the story of the conquest of the land we need to look behind the historical events themselves to the spiritual battle that is taking place behind the scenes. You see, ever since sin entered the world back in Genesis chapter 3, the world has become a battleground between God and his great enemy, the devil. Of course, it's not an equal battle, because the devil is a creature. He has no power beyond that which God allows him. And from the New Testament, we know that the devil has already been defeated at the cross, and at the end of time, he will be totally destroyed. But in the meantime, the battle continues to rage, and the devil is doing all he possibly can to frustrate the purposes of God. Uh, The Apostle Paul tells us that the way the devil does this is by taking men and women captive and making them slaves to do his will. And that's the perspective we need to have in our minds as we come to our passage this morning. Because here we have the army of the Lord, the people of Israel. They're people with a purpose. They're about to go into a land that is occupied and heavily defended against them. The reason that God has given them the land is that the Canaanites have gone so far away from God that there's no way back. They are beyond redemption. And God told Abraham this was what would happen all the way back in Genesis chapter 15. 
So God is giving this land to his people. That is God's purpose. But there is opposition. And at this stage, the opposition is focused in the city of Jericho. And so, in verse 1 of our passage, Joshua says to the two spies, go, look over the land, especially Jericho. Now, why especially Jericho? Well, consider the situation for a moment. Um, As the chapter begins, Israel are on the other side of the Jordan on the east bank. First of all, as we saw last week, Israel have got to cross the Jordan in flood. And once they get across to the West Bank, it's only two hours march to the city of Jericho, which was a well-defended city with a well-equipped army guarding the way into the land. So Jericho was the first military obstacle, but more important than that, At this point in the Bible, Jericho stands for opposition to the purposes of God. Now, there are two ways to think about opposition to God. Either it can be won over, or it must be defeated and destroyed. In a sense, that's God, uh, how God is still looking at this world today. A world which, as the New Testament tells us, is in the grip of the evil one. So how does God look at the world in rebellion against him? Well, he sees some men and women who will be won over to God's side. But then he sees others who are so entrenched in their opposition that the only possible outcome is their defeat and their destruction. And this side of the cross, we know that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will be coming, not as the baby in Bethlehem, but as the judge of the whole earth. But until that day comes, we still have the opportunity to come back to God, to change our allegiance from opposition to God to submission to God, to come out of Jericho and to come into Israel. And that, you see, is why the rescue of Rahab and her family is so significant for us. Because, you see, it shows us that God loves to work in enemy territory. Just think about this with me for a moment. A generation earlier, God told Moses to send the twelve spies to check out the land. So isn't it reasonable for us to assume that God also instructed Joshua to send the two spies now. The text doesn't actually say that explicitly, but God had already told Joshua that he'd given the land to Israel. We saw that last week. So technically, 
Joshua doesn't actually need military intelligence about Jericho in order to be sure of victory. No, what was needed were the arrangements by which Rahab and her family would be saved when the city was taken. And the more I think about it, the more it seems to me that the situation here is similar to the one in John chapter 4 where we're told that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Why did Jesus have to go through Samaria? The Samaritan route wasn't the only road to Galilee. In fact, the normal route for any self-respecting Jew between Jerusalem in the south and Galilee in the north was to avoid Samaria altogether because Samaria was enemy territory. But Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to save the Samaritan woman because she was one of God's elect. And my friends, if you don't get that, you miss the whole point of the story. Now in the same way, I want to suggest that in Joshua chapter 2, the spies were sent to Jericho to rescue Rahab. The spies didn't know that, of course, any more than you or I know what the outcome will be when we're on mission for God. But as we shall see, God had already been working in Rahab's heart. And now, through Joshua, he was sending messengers to confirm her faith and to save her from destruction. And I find it very interesting that in a book that says so much about the judgment of Almighty God, the first real story is a story of God's rescuing grace. It's actually one of the greatest salvation stories in the Old Testament. Why do I say that? Well, there are three surprises in the text that make the point. And the first is God's unlikely choice, verses 1 to 7. God's unlikely choice. Verse 1 tells us that when the spies arrived, they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Now there's little doubt that uh, prostitute is the right translation of the Hebrew word. Uh, I know that the NIV suggests the alternative reading of innkeeper, but that's only because many, many years later, the Jewish rabbis changed the word in the original because of the reverence in which Rahab later came to be held in Israel. And of course, uh, the New Testament does hold Rahab in very high regard as a woman of faith. Uh, so you'll find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, and in James chapter 2, verse 25. Don't look at it now. But if you look up those references later, you'll find that although they hold Rahab up as an example of faith, both verses describe Rahab as a prostitute. 
So, whoever would have thought that God would save a woman like this? You know, she wasn't born into a family that had any knowledge of Israel's God. There was no prophet of God in Jericho. There was no Bible. There was no testimony. There was no revelation of any kind. Now, Jericho was a thoroughly pagan city with all of the idolatry and immorality that you would expect to find in a situation like that. And as a prostitute, Rahab was living the Jericho lifestyle and she was totally immersed in its depravity. Now, elsewhere, um, the Bible says that prostitution is always a sin. Of course, the Bible doesn't say that prostitution was a worse sin than any other sin because the Bible doesn't think about sin in comparative terms. Some Christians do think like that. The Bible doesn't think like that. The Bible does say the greatest sin of all is unbelief, But every sin separates man from God and every sin provokes God's wrath and deserves his judgment, including prostitution. And yet Rahab is the unlikely woman that God chose to rescue. Now I should say that some of the commentators want to kind of add to Rahab's sin count by uh, pointing to her lying and deception in verses 4 to 6. So you can see in verse 3, it says, The king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they've come to spy out the whole land. Incidentally, they must have been pretty hopeless spies, mustn't they? Because they were recognised as soon as they uh, came into the land. But Rahab had taken the two men and hidden them, She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they'd come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly, you may catch up with them. But she'd taken them on the roof and hidden them under the flax and so on. Now Rahab tells at least two lies there. And, um, forgive me for saying it, but some of the commentators get rather hysterical about this. They say, well, you know, here we have more proof of Rahab's sinful nature. Well, maybe. But I want to encourage us this morning not to get bogged down with this for two reasons. First, there are certain other situations in Scripture where deception is seen to be necessary and not wrong. For example, Exodus chapter 1, the Hebrew midwives deceive Pharaoh about the birth of the male babies. And scripture says, as a result, God was kind to them. They lied to Pharaoh, but God blessed them for what they'd done. Interesting. Much later... Uh, King David sent his friend Hushai to be a mole in the court of Absalom, his rebellious son, and kind of set up a network of spies. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15 and 16. 
So on David's instructions, Hushai deliberately deceived and lied to Absalom and yet scripture approves of what he did. Now of course, in all normal situations, lying is wrong full stop. But there are certain circumstances where deception is sometimes necessary. War would be one example. And we need to remember that before we start pointing uh, hypocritical fingers at Rahab in verses 4 to 6. But the second reason, the second reason we mustn't get bogged down with Rahab's sin count here is because it's not the main point of the story. And that brings us to the second surprise in the text, which I've called Rahab's unlikely faith. Rahab's unlikely faith. Now you see, this is the big thing that the writer wants us to take away from the text. In verse 9, Rahab says to the spies, I know that the Lord has given this land to you and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you totally destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now listen to this. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Friends, that is an amazing statement. Because you see, what Rahab is actually saying is this. As far as the Israelites are concerned, Jericho may look like an impossible barrier. But the truth is, it's been defeated already before the Israelites have even crossed the Jordan. And the agent of that defeat is the word of God. Now why do I say that? Well you see Rahab says I know that the Lord has given this land to you. Now what makes her so sure? Verse 10 We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. Verse 11 When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because of you. You see, the truth of who God is and what God has done for his people has already penetrated Jericho. And when the word of God gets into enemy territory people react in one of two ways. Either there is faith, like Rahab, verse 11, the Lord your God is God, or there is fear which resists God and goes on fighting against him. Now that's what happened in Jericho. 
Because just look at the middle of verse 11. Everyone's courage fails because of you. Now friends, those are the only two responses to the living God who is all-powerful and who is our judge. Either we have faith in him or we fear him. And you know what? It's an absolutely fascinating theme running through the book of Joshua that the word of God the truth about who he is and what he's done is the means by which Israel advanced through the land. So keep a finger in chapter 2, turn on a couple of pages to chapter 5 verse 1, page 157. Joshua 5 verse 1. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we crossed over. Their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. So how did God defeat all those pagan kings with their armies? By the word of what he'd done getting into them so that they came to realise who he is and what he would do to them. You see, it wasn't the might and the power of Joshua that won the land. No, no. It was the word of God. Turn on again to chapter 9, verse 24, where we find that rather extraordinary episode with the Gibeonites. We'll get there eventually. But let's look at it now. Chapter 9, verse 24. The Gibeonites answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you, so we feared for our lives because of you. That's why we did this. Do you see? That's why the Gibeonites acted as they did. The Lord your God commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land so it was certain to happen. And these pagan people recognised the power of the word of God and they knew that it would be directed against them unless they did something about it. And you find exactly the same thing down at the bottom of the same page, chapter 10, verse 1. Now Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and that the people of Gibeon had made a treaty of peace with Israel and were living near them. He and his people were very much alarmed at this, because Gibeon was an important city and so on. You see, the word of God that speaks of his power and might got into the heart of this pagan king and destroyed his courage. So, can you see that in all of these examples 
the reaction of the people to the word of God is fear leading to rebellion. They decided to fight against God and of course they lost. But now come back to chapter 2 verse 11 because there we find something totally different. Because here Rahab's reaction is not fear but faith. She says, I know that the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. And you see what she really means by that is because of who God really is and has shown himself to be, I want to be on the Lord's side. And you see, this is on the lips of someone who had no Bible knowledge, none of the spiritual privileges that you and I take for granted. She simply heard about everything that God had done and she faced the facts. And she said to herself, well, how on earth do I explain this? How do I explain the amazing exodus from Egypt? How can I account for the fact that they crossed the Red Sea on dry land? How can I explain the fact that this people who have no military training, no formal military organisation, have defeated the powerful kings on the east side of the Jordan? How do I explain that? And as the word of God sank into her heart, she said, well, the only way that I can account for these things is to accept that this God is the true God. And if that's the case, well, Jericho's got no chance. The result is a foregone conclusion. And here is my chance to do something for myself and something for my family before it's too late. And so by faith, she makes the great decision that, that she's going to break with her past and she's going to side with Israel. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. You see, she made her decision by faith based on the word of God. And now she's going to do everything she possibly can to help the spies as an expression of her new allegiance to the living God. And please, don't let's underestimate what Rahab's doing here. She was cutting herself off from her background. She was separating herself from the pagan culture. And she was trusting God for her preservation and for her future. And that's why this immoral pagan woman becomes such a great example of faith in the New Testament. We've already mentioned the references in Hebrews 11 and James chapter 2, but there's a third reference, isn't there? There's a third reference. You don't need to look at it now. 
Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, Rahab is included in the family tree of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the difference that faith made in the life of this woman. Everyone in Jericho heard about God, but nearly all of them gave way to fear and persisted in rebellion. But this immoral pagan woman heard the word of God, she believed it, and she put her life in his hands. And that's how she became a member of God's family. Rahab's unlikely faith. That's the second surprise in the text. But there is a third surprise in the text, which is faith's unlikely test. Faith's unlikely test. Now notice the pattern we saw last week. Rahab proves her faith by her obedience to the spy's instructions. So the terms of uh, Rahab's agreement with the spies are given to us in verse 14. The spies say, our lives for your lives. If you don't tell what we're doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. Now look at the conditions in verse 17. The men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless two things. Verse 18. Unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And secondly, unless you've brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. So can you see that Rahab's faith is being tested by obedience? And as we saw last week, that is always the way. I mean, it's one thing, isn't it, to say, yes, you know, (laughs) I have faith in God. But it's another thing altogether to do what God tells you. Because real faith obeys. And here, the test is that there has to be a scarlet cord or thread in the window and all those that she wants to see rescued must be in the house with her. Now that's very interesting because it tells us, doesn't it, that it wasn't Rahab's faith that rescued her family. See, you can't save someone else. No doubt Rahab's faith was very influential on the rest of her family, but they had to make up their own minds, didn't they? They had to decide to come under her roof or not. If they were going to be saved when the city was destroyed, they had to believe the word of the spies and go into the house that was identified by the scarlet cord. Now what are we going to say about the scarlet cord? What are we to make of that? 
Well, from the early church onwards, uh, Christians have seen here a repeat of the Passover. Because, of course, what brought Israel into existence as the people of God was that extraordinary night, that night in Egypt, when they sheltered under the blood of the Passover lamb. And it was the blood, wasn't it, on the door frames of their homes that distinguished them from their neighbours when God's judgment fell upon Egypt. And here, the means by which Rahab and her family become part of the people of God is by sheltering under a similar sign or symbol. Now, there was no magic power in the scarlet cord. Don't let's go tying scarlet cords on our windows when we get home today. The scarlet cord merely set Rahab's house apart from all of the others when the city was destroyed. Now, what saved Rahab was her faith in God's promise expressed in obedience to the command to tie the scarlet cord in the window. That was the crucial test. But what an unlikely test it was. I mean, imagine for a moment if we'd been in Jericho all those years ago and we knew that the armies of the Lord would be arriving at the city gate at any moment and someone said, well, tie a scarlet cord in the window of your house and you'll be saved. Now, what would you have said? I think most people would have said, well, don't be so silly. But you see, that's how it's always been, isn't it? The Apostle Paul preached the most amazing sermons the world has ever heard after the Lord Jesus Christ. But did people listen? Did everyone listen? No. Paul says, the cross was foolishness to Greeks, a stumbling block to Jews. They thought it was silly. But the truth is that the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. All who believe. And friends, you see, real faith, like Rahab's faith, believes God's word and puts the whole of my life at God's disposal. That's real faith. So that what God tells me to do, I do. And if God says the only way into my holy presence is to kneel before the Lord Jesus in submission, to confess your sin and to be cleansed by his blood, well, the foolish thing the really foolish thing is to refuse to believe that, isn't it? Well, here Rahab's faith is shown to be real faith because she does what God tells her to do. And so later on when we get to chapter 6 we find that when the walls of the city fell Rahab's house is intact. The only one that is. But of course, she was sheltering under the scarlet cord. She was sheltering under God's promise. 
God rescued her by his mighty power and Rahab and all her family were welcomed into God's eternal family. So let's remember as we close this morning that if God can rescue a Rahab, an immoral pagan with absolutely no spiritual privileges or religious knowledge, he can rescue anybody, can't he? And there may be somebody here this morning or maybe somebody listening to this talk on the internet and uh, you're thinking to yourself, well, God can't possibly be interested in me. I've done too many bad things. And if that's you, remember Rahab. Because if Rahab was here this morning, she would say, whatever your background, whatever your need, God knows all about you. And he is concerned for you. It doesn't matter what your past has been, how dark it was or what you've done, the sovereign grace of God can break through. can break through anything. God loves you, whoever you are and whatever your background. And he's concerned that you should come to love him and to bow in submission to his lordship. There is no situation, none, where God's sovereign grace cannot break through. And if you're concerned, as I know a number of us are this morning, for friends and family who seem to be so unlikely to respond to God's truth, well, let us learn this morning that God's truth can get into enemy territory, just as it got into Jericho. And when the word of God begins to work, well, all kinds of strongholds and citadels begin to fall because the power, the power is not in me uh, being a Christian who's good enough to commend the gospel. That's not where the power is. The power is in the Holy Spirit taking the word of God and riveting it into people's hearts so that they cannot possibly escape its truth. And faith that is grounded in God's word is faith that God honours, however strong the enemy might look. So let's take heart this morning. God is at work. He is rescuing Rahab's and their families. And you know, as God worked through Rahab to save her family, so he will work through us if we will only let him. Lastly, if you know this morning that you are still living in Jericho, that actually the truth is that you're still resisting God's purposes, can I plead with you this morning to think very hard indeed about what you're doing and where it's going. Can I plead with you to come under the scarlet cord, the cross of the Lord Jesus, before it is too late? Because, you see, my friend, the word of God is true. The judgment of God is coming 
and all human Jerichos, without exception, are doomed to fall. But if you trust him now, he will save you then. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you and praise you for this glorious example of your love and grace. Thank you that you lifted Rahab and her family out of a situation of total despair and you made her a member of your family. Lord, you did it then and you recorded it for our learning that we might know that you are at work even in the most unlikely situations and that you are gathering your people from every tribe and tongue and people and language. Thank you that you're at work even this morning here in Cape Town. Thank you for all those among whom you are working by your word. And please give us such a confidence in your word that we may proclaim it by our lives as well as by our lips. And may we see, even in our day, multitudes falling at the feet of Jesus and being numbered amongst your people, Israel. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.